Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is Tuesday, August 8th, Canada's most irreverent talk show. We are live just after 4.02 Eastern time, in case you are unaware of what time it is, in which case I am blissfully... Uh, blissfully aware of the time. So uh, anyway, if you hear a little bit of background noise going on, I should probably apologize in advance. Uh, we are having a... Okay, I can't tell you what's going on without telling you a whole story that I'll, I'll try to condense here, but we are getting a new water heater installed, and I think at like my last glance, it is installed, and they're just doing some finishing touches and whatnot. But the reason we are... I live in Ontario, so please don't hold it against me. Ontario has this like very uniquely Ontario scam in which people, I presume a majority of the province, certainly a large chunk, rent their water heaters. Now, I've been going through my whole life thinking this was the natural order of things and thinking this is just what everyone in Canada did. You just paid your $30 a month and you use someone else's water heater and if it breaks down, they come in and replace it. And it came up only like two or three months ago that I was speaking to someone from Alberta who legitimately had never heard of this. Like, they never in their entire life had heard of the idea of someone renting a water heater. And this person had, I think, a fairly legitimate level of incredulousness at it because they're like, well, you don't rent your washer and dryer, you don't rent your dishwasher, you don't rent your oven, and, and so on. And as I was trying to explain this thing, I realized how little sense it made. And it's not that you're not allowed to own a water heater in Ontario. You can buy one if you want. But it just seems like a lot of people have just been suckered into this rental thing. Anyway, so we bought our house about three years ago, and the old owners had a rental agreement, and just in all of the things that you have to pay for when you move into a place, buying a new water heater just didn't seem like something we wanted to do. So we just sort of paid the monthly fee, and I think I set up auto billing and just sort of forgot about it until a couple of weeks ago. No, it was about a month ago, I guess. Our air conditioner, we had to get some maintenance done on it anyway. So the company that rents us the water heater is also the company that does the maintenance on the air conditioner, apparently. So we own the air conditioner. That we don't rent. Don't worry. So we had them come by, and they tried to like put us on this stupid like maintenance plan where they're like, well, for $10 a month, you can get your annual maintenance done on the air conditioner. And I said, well, but that's more than if I just pay for you to come and do the maintenance on the air conditioner. So no, I don't want this plan. And then they said, okay okay, but you should get the plan. And I said, no, I don't want the plan. So they come and do the air conditioner maintenance. And then they ask again if I want the plan. And I said, no. And then on my next bill, I've been charged $10 for maintenance, a maintenance plan in addition to the service charge of like a hundred bucks. And I was so annoyed by the company trying to gouge me for $10 that I just decided I would screw them out of the $35 they've been getting from me every month for the water heater. So I think it was like the very next day I called and asked for a water heater, which we're now getting installed. And I'm like so ashamed of it because if I look at like what I've been paying for the last three years for someone else's water heater, it is a big chunk of what I'm paying today for my own water heater. And I've never in the last three years had to have any repair done or replacement. And uh, this one, I mean, maybe the joke will be on me if in a week's time it just like goes on the fritz or whatever. But anyway, I was, I was asking a couple of my colleagues before I started the show here. 
because they live all over the country. I said, are any of you aware of this? And they all think I'm insane and the biggest sucker whatsoever for having rented something when I don't rent any other appliances. So if you are in Ontario and you are paying for a water heater, there is a better way. There is another world outside of this that you don't know. And no, I'm not getting a commission. I'm not selling water heaters. Maybe we should do like a True North branded water heater and try to just like outfit Ontarians and we'll give them water heater freedom. Uh, but, but all of this, I, I'm looking here. Uh, Frank in the chat says, as a Manitoba, I don't even know what that word is. A Manitoba, Manitoba Ian. I, what is someone from Manitoba called? Actually, I realize I just don't talk about them often enough. Manitoba Ian. I don't know. It's spelt weird. Uh, but he says we don't rent our water heaters here either. We buy them and install them ourselves. Yeah. Well, I'm like a, a little Ontario Nancy boy, so I didn't install my water heater. I've had someone that is far better at that uh, doing that. Yeah. No, it's Manitoban. Yeah. Why this guy just added like an I in there? It's totally Manitoban. I don't know why I forgot the demonym for Manitoba. Uh, anyway, I'm getting like a whole bunch of people saying they have gotten rid of the rental so they're all miles above me anyway miles ahead of me and above me you never know okay that's my little rant of the day here about how once again ontarians are getting screwed albertans figured this out long time ago they don't have rats and they don't have rented water heaters and they are a freer people for it uh in any event the a big story today no it's not my water heater uh you may have seen this photo from justin trudeau where it is, oh, now we've got like the rental water heater apologist here saying they're built to a higher standard than the ones you buy. Well, I'm not sure that's true, actually. But nevertheless, it's a, an asset that now I own. So I can be proud of my water heater. I can hug my water heater and just, you know, draw a smiley face on it if I want. Uh, in any case, big, yeah, big hot water heater has got to him, my uh, colleague Phil has. It's the, the big hot water heater rental lobby is uh, out in full force today. Uh, anyway, going on to serious business here not that this isn't serious for people uh justin trudeau and his son xavier are on team barbie yeah i don't know if you saw this photo our prime minister decided he would take in a movie over the weekend and there is justin trudeau and his son we are team barbie wearing their uh, people were calling this a pink shirt uh that both of them were wearing if i'm being technical I think Justin Trudeau's shirt is more aptly described as coral than pink. Uh, just be, I mean, maybe it's not, no, it's not, yeah, it's a little bit, yeah, it's got that orange hue that coral does. I don't know if we put coral in the category of pink, but nevertheless, Justin Trudeau's coral slash pink hoodie, Xavier's hot pink t-shirt, the two of them on Team Barbie, a father-son duo taken in a nice movie. I could not care less about this. I told you last week that I saw the Barbie movie on opening weekend, and while I went in expecting it to be terrible, I left thinking it was, eh, it was tolerable. It was certainly not as horrendously woke as a lot of people were pretending. And I actually, if you saw Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire's commentary on this, I'm kind of on Michael Knowles' side on this, and that Barbie actually had, if you really look for it, a somewhat conservative message in the sense that it was mocking the performative wokeness. It was mocking the virtue signaling. It was mocking the very ideas that a lot of people thinks it wa think it was promoting. And I, I said at its core, Barbie also upholds the idea of a gender binary, which in this day and age, the woke refused to do. It talks about at great length the fact that men and women are fundamentally different. So I, I didn't leave the Barbie movie thinking it was this 
grand, beautiful, cinematic brilliance. I didn't leave it thinking it was my favorite movie ever, but I said, it actually is not a movie that conservatives have to just naturally hate. But now that Justin Trudeau is wearing his coral slash pink sweatshirt and uh, standing up and declaring himself on Team Barbie, I realize that it makes it easier to hate the whole thing here. But now the question that I would ask here is, what is he getting at? Now, it is entirely possible that Justin Trudeau is just letting his inner Barbie soar here. And this is who he's been. Maybe he played with Barbies as a kid. Maybe he just has played with them as a father with his uh, daughter or his children in general. I don't know. I don't really care. Maybe that's just who he is and he's been waiting for this moment. Or... Or perhaps it is about trolling us all. Now, it is very difficult to accuse Justin Trudeau of playing 3D chess, of actually doing anything that involves a level of self-awareness. But when you look at the responses to this, it kind of just triggered everyone. It triggered conservatives in this country. It triggered people in other countries. Pierce Morgan, who is a bit insufferable himself for a number of reasons, not this necessarily, has come out and said he's so glad he's not Canadian, which of course basically gave his opponents the ammunition they needed of being able to turn around and say, well, we're glad you're not Canadian too. But whether you like Piers Morgan or not, he sort of doubled down. And then in true Canadian fashion, whenever anyone criticizes Canada, uh, it's like a bat signal goes up for all the usual suspects. So the Toronto Star ran this whole thing about it and all of that. And now you've got Katie Telford pushing back. I mean, Katie Telford has just been like on a Twitter tear lately going after conservatives. This is like catnip for her. Uh, and all of this is to say that it's caused a bit of a weird culture war and it's brought out some very negative commentary. You've got people that are saying, oh yeah, Justin Trudeau's gay and oh, it's creepy for him and his son to do this. And I, I say, don't go down that road at all because what you're doing is, for starters, you're just stretching something that is entirely benign. The idea of a father and son going to a movie, whether it's Barbie or uh, the new Beanie Babies uh, movie or Oppenheimer, it, it should be encouraged. And we should actually encourage parents and their children to have a relationship, especially when your kid's a teen and you don't want anything to do with your parents. Even if they aren't Justin Trudeau as a teen, you don't want anything to do with your parents. If your parent is Justin Trudeau, probably a, a bigger problem for you to have to contend with. But nevertheless, that should be encouraged. And then you flip to the other side of this and you wonder who actually cares. And I, and I don't think anyone is truly bothered by this. I, I think people just don't like that they see everything as being scripted and stilted and performative. And that is, I think, where we need to look at here, which is that this is a guy who less than a week ago announced a, a very difficult chapter in his life that was coming to an end in the sense that he had said he was separating from his wife. And they wanted privacy. They wanted the kids and the family to be able to handle this all together. And they said they're going on a vacation this week. And then the leave my family alone, keep them out of it, becomes a here's a picture of my son and I in pink shirts going to a movie. So putting your kid out there when you said, hey, leave my kids alone as they deal with this difficult time, I think is actually quite problematic. And it shows that Justin Trudeau is wanting the best of both worlds. He's wanting to use his kids when it suits him and keep them away from everything when it doesn't. Now, to be clear, I do not believe kids are at all fair game in politics. I believe we should keep people's families out of it unless the family is pontificating on politics in a way that you can criticize the ideas on. And that is not what Xavier's doing. 
Xavier's offense is wearing a pink shirt, which he can actually pull off a little bit better than Justin Trudeau can do the coral hoodie, I think, and going to a movie with his dad. Now, if we want to talk about taste in cinema here, I'm not aware of Justin Trudeau broadcasting any other film preferences. So maybe he's a big cinephile and he's going to a new movie every week. I don't know. Uh, Jen Gerson, who is the co-founder of The Line alongside Matt Gurney, of which I'm a subscriber, would encourage you to subscribe as well. She said here, look, she just wants a world leader who picks Oppenheimer and she doesn't think that's too much to ask. Yeah, I want the world leader that is uh, going to steep him or herself in the historical nonfiction genre of Oppenheimer or anything else. That's what we want. And look, I think the whole point of the whole Barbieheimer thing was that people see both. So if he wants to do the double header and say we're Team Barbie and then we're, I don't know if you want to be Team Oppenheimer necessarily, but Team Barbie and then Team Oppenheimer, that's one way to do it here. But that's not what he did. And he's trying to do the whole look at me, look at me thing, the woke performative virtue signaling, or he's also just trying to, as I said earlier, troll conservatives. And you know what? If that's his goal, it's probably going to work. And just to put some contrast on this here, if you want to talk about the tale of two leaders, Pierre Polyev has put forward his own image today that is trying to really shatter, I think, the left's scary, evil, conservative boogeyman narrative about him. The ad that was released, very simple, very well shot. I don't know when it was put together, but it was a, a brief ad in which Pierre Polyev, the family man, is put on offer for people. And I'm going to play this for you here because I want to talk about it for a couple minutes after. Who is Pierre Polyev? Many know him as the common sense leader the country needs. His school teacher parents know him as the boy they adopted and raised in their modest home in the suburbs of Calgary. His dad knows him as the son he took to early morning hockey games. His neighbors know him as the boy who used to deliver the morning newspaper. His children know him in Francais, Espanol, and English as Papa. And I know him as a guy who loves me for who I am, a Canadian who came to call Canada home and his wife. So when Pierre says, it doesn't matter who you know or where you're from, but rather who you are and where you're going, these aren't just empty words. He's lived it. Common sense. Let's bring it home. That was Anna Polyev narrating this ad about Pierre Polyev, the father, Pierre Polyev, the son, Pierre Polyev, the husband, uh, really putting forward an ad that tells you absolutely nothing about what the guy will do as prime minister, but it also puts him in a light that a lot of people haven't seen him as. And I, I think right now we're seeing the conservatives are trying to do, I don't know if it's a rebranding or just a branding of Polyev, but they're trying to paint the guy in a light that's different than the evil, can scary conservative racist, white supremacist, bigot, pro-whatever, uh, anti-this, anti-that thing that the liberals are going to do. And it's a, a very lovely ad. I mean, I'm seeing from all these people that are part of like the big political establishment saying, oh, if this is the side of Pierre Polyev that people are going to see, he's going to be prime minister. And I, I don't think it's that easy. But I think there's a way that you can have your family highlighted that doesn't look like you're just trying to do what Trudeau and his son were doing in the Barbie photo, which is just like 
this weird sort of photo oppy nonsense, even though a political ad is by its nature the most scripted, stilted, inauthentic thing that there can be. I mean, for all I know, they had 10 versions of those and they ran them all by the focus groups, the glasses on, the glasses off. Do we throw the daughter? Do we carry her? Do we, uh, you know, kiss them on the cheek? Like, whatever. Like, I don't know. But I'm saying that these things are not as natural and authentic as people may want to believe. But it still comes across as such. And that's what I think is kind of interesting here. Now, uh, just for contrast, uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals also released their own new campaign ad today. Take a look. Oh, wait, that might have been the wrong one. Sorry, I thought that was the, the liberal campaign ad. No, it didn't have the, like, I'm Justin Trudeau and I approve this message. Although, you know, if we are going to start drawing some comparisons here, I, I will say that the inauthentic, plastic, utopian world of Barbie is probably not far off from the liberal world of Justin Trudeau. Uh, maybe that can be the real uh, poll question we go for is, who sets a better standard for the real world, Barbie or Justin Trudeau? And I think Barbie is probably going to edge out Justin Trudeau on this one before long. But nevertheless, the point of all of this is that there is a way that you can have your family become a part of your brand. But if you do, you have to make sure that that is a part of you that is real. And the reason we saw so much, uh, I'll say finger wagging about Justin Trudeau last week from people is that they actually felt like Justin Trudeau had been stage managing this entire image for so many years. And, and I maintain what I said last week, which is that his separation is absolutely none of anyone's business. I think people should leave them alone. I think no matter how much you hate the guy and how aggrieved you feel about his and his government's policies and statements, his marriage is not the issue. His politics are, his policies are, and perhaps even his personality is, but not his wife and not his kids. But it is also, I think, worth pointing out as we've been discussing, that Justin Trudeau is trying to have it both ways. When it was convenient, he'd bring the wife out on the campaign trail. She'd be up there on stage in London with Idris Elba, uh, trying to promote the Trudeau brand. And then behind closed doors, as we know, clearly it was not an ideal situation for either of them. And, and I do not celebrate the breakdown of a family. And I think we all need to understand the costs that go along with families in politics. And Pierre Polyev is in a similar situation. I, I don't know what the guy is like behind closed doors. I know a lot of people who have known his wife for many, many years and speak so highly of her. And I think the fact that she's actually taking an active role in his campaign in a way that uh, the last two conservative leader spouses haven't really as much. Uh, Rebecca O'Toole, lovely woman, wasn't, I, I don't recall her ever narrating an ad or being in them except for just being there in the photos, uh, similar to Jill Shear. And, and their kids. I know their kids were, were quite a bit younger as, as well. So we'll see what happens with this. But I do think that uh, there is a cautionary tale here that people need to be aware of. And, and if we're going to stack up, you know, Trudeau, the family man against Pierre Polyev, the family man, I think it's a legitimate question. Which one is more believable to Canadians? Which one are Canadians going to buy into? So 
That's the question there. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed the uh, liberal campaign ad gag. I thought of that like two minutes before I did it. So uh, glad Sean fired the right clip there and didn't go like, wait, wait, we have a liberal ad. I didn't know about this. No, that was the one. Uh, let's turn to energy policy here. And just one point before I, I get to the real topic of the discussion here that I wanted to get to is that the federal government is trying to use the carrot and stick thing, except it's a lot more stick than carrot, to force provinces to get their electricity grids to be so-called net zero. We've heard from the environment minister that the feds are considering uh, tying a lot more tax credits to provinces overhauling their electricity system. Now, a lot of provinces are already doing this, but it's a slow process and it's a very costly process. And a lot of the activists, for example, don't like that Ontario's phase out of coal had to involve gas. Well, yeah, wind and solar are not at all doing what you think it's doing. Uh, they're not at all affordable. The activists seem to hate nuclear, despite the fact that it's one of the most uh, clean and cost-efficient forms of energy generation. Uh, but not enough for the federal government who thinks they need to try to extort more money out or more action out of the provinces. And this is how they're going to do it. Uh, but then we go to the bigger picture here, which is the climate change catastrophism as uh, termed in a new book by Andy West with the Philosophy Foundation in London, which I learned of in a great column by Joe Oliver in the Financial Post. This is Canada's last fiscally responsible finance minister, and he joins me now. Joe, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming back on the show. Now, you contended with a lot of the activists when you were in government and, and in cabinet. And the one thing that I would say is that enough was never enough. And, and we've seen the rhetoric really ramp up in recent years to the point where it's not just, yeah, we've got to do something about climate. It's the world is burning. We're all going to die. There's no question. Uh, this is a, a catastrophe uh, that, that, that is imminent and we mustn't uh, question it. And that's, uh, that, that's been building up for some time. You recall it was, it was global warming and then when it didn't warm, it became uh, climate change. But there was always this, this intensity, uh, almost a, a quasi-religious uh, uh, fervor or certainly an ideological uh, fervor that that was that was uh, behind uh, the the rhetoric, and there were all sorts of incantations of of, uh, of doom and priests and priestesses that uh, that were carrying uh, the the, uh, the sacred message. And if you weren't uh, on side and totally on side, uh, then of course uh, you weren't just a skeptic; you were a denier. Well, I, that term is actually quite an important one because there are a lot of people, uh, and I've interviewed many of them, who are, are believers in the fundamental idea that humans are causing global warming, that we need to change something. They're even supporters of carbon taxes. But people that don't go the full distance and the full demonization and the full anti-industrialization approach, and they're vilified. They're called deniers or lukewarmers uh, sometimes. And I, I think that's interesting as well. That, that we've basically taken this uh, scientific process or what's supposed to be a scientific process and have turned it into this us versus them, a uh, very polar political discussion. Yeah, and you can only, you know, the reason I wrote the article is because for some time I've been puzzled as to the the fervor we were talking about, the the, the the prevalence of, of these beliefs and and the, the, the willingness to, to uh, undergo really severe economic uh, hardship 
even though what we were doing um, wouldn't necessarily have any effect on the global temperature. And we know that uh, in, in Canada. So I, I was always searching for what was the psychology behind it. And then when I, when I read the book that, that you just uh, referred to, which, which is a social psychological analysis of it, uh, it really uh, came together uh, because it, it refers to, to culture. And culture is, is either religious or it's ideological. Uh, and either way, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't permit any uh, dissent. Uh, dissidence is not is not allowed. I mean, we talk a lot about diversity, but diversity of opinion, certainly on that issue and, and a lot of others, um, is is simply uh, intolerable. And I, I think that that part of the, uh, the the fervor and the and the fundamental insecurity, I, I guess, is that uh, it's based on allegedly a profound belief that the science is settled and we've all we've all heard that repeated uh, endlessly so there's no reason for anybody to listen to someone who might want to uh, present uh, scientists who have a different view and let me tell you there are thousands of them that do even though they're in the minority so you know what it, what explains that and and I think it goes to uh, to the ideological or religious uh, c- commitment um, and and uh, it it just um, doesn't tolerate uh, any dissent and and that's that's really uh, unfortunate because what we're being asked to do will in in Canada according to the R- RBC economics cost the country two trillion dollars to get to net zero by 2050 and the globe according to McKinsey uh, will have to fork over 275 trillion dollars. Well, this is this is a staggering amount, and frankly, I don't think uh, there's any way that the uh, that the Western uh, democracies uh, will uh, will tolerate that. And we're starting to see the resistance um, in in Europe, where they've just gone through a, an energy crisis, and uh, the cost of uh, of energy has has ballooned, and uh, they're confronted in a lot of cases, very tragically, with a choice between uh, eating or heating. Well, uh, that's not uh, tolerable, and neither is depriving the world's poorest countries of energy, which is the only way out of uh, abject poverty. I I fear you may be slightly optimistic in in one sense, and and my reason for thinking that is just looking at the last three years and how much economic harm people were willing to withstand uh, to deal with what was presented as an emergency, and, and that was COVID. And whatever we think of how governments responded to that, uh, once what we learned there is that when something is an emergency or a crisis, all of the old rule books tend to get thrown away. And I, I feel that the branding of climate change as an emergency will license a lot of the same economic harm. I, people are totally willing to uh, bankrupt certain sectors and certain businesses to fix this problem. Well, uh, don't uh, confuse me totally with an optimist uh, on this matter. But I think you, you got it right when you said they're, they're prepared to, to see others suffer. But mm-hmm. the question is, uh, how much um, pain will will the population overall be willing to? And and polls indicate that uh, that it's not very much. And what what we've got in Europe is a bit of a test case because there 
uh, the, the emergency is real. It's it's intense and it's it's hurting people right across uh, the board. Uh, the, the poor people always are the ones who are affected most adversely, but the middle class is is uh, suffering as well. And you see it in the polls. You see um, the prime minister of the UK backing off some of his his policies. He's allowing a lot more drilling going on. He's he's backing off some of the restrictions on. Uh, uh, on on what kind of uh, heating uh, is permitted and 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 whether uh, and and you know in in Europe they've defined um, natural gas as non-emitting as a clean source of energy. Well, uh, uh, you know you you can you can argue with that or not, uh, but the reason they did that is 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 the practicality that if you don't have gas to back up wind and solar, uh, you're going to have blackouts and brownouts. Uh, or you're going to use uh, coal and uh, you're going to burn wood pellets. Uh, so when it comes to that kind of a crisis, and we're not there yet, but when it does, then I think people start changing their minds. And you can see that also in, in some of the U.S. Uh, states like California, uh, the so-called blue states, that is the, the Democratic mm-hmm. states, which have moved more uh, to to renewables and are paying the price in terms of uh, very high energy costs and periodic brownouts. Well, and I think to, to add to that, the one thing in Canada that's been so infuriating, and this goes back to the electricity stuff I was talking about at the outset of the segment here, is that they're wanting a solution that doesn't exist. And, and, you know, yes, wind power and solar power exist, but the output, the cost, the efficiency, the reliability are simply not there. And it's not that they might not be in the future or some other magical energy source won't exist in the future, but they're not there now. And, and you know, provinces like Ontario, like Alberta, have spent a lot of money to transition away from coal because that was deemed to be an environmental benefit. They're, they have to rely on gas. In Ontario, you have the benefit of nuclear, but even that is derided by a lot of these same activists. Yeah, that's right. And I've written about that because I have some background. I was the former chair of the uh, of, of the uh, independent electricity uh, system operator, which basically runs mm-hmm. the grid in, uh, in Ontario. And uh, the, 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 the truth about renewables is that in a small amount, uh, they can have a role. Um, but as we know, the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so as you increase the amount, the proportion uh, of, of energy that's coming from, from renewables, then the cost starts escalating dramatically and the reliability uh, declines as well. You absolutely have to have natural gas as a backup because right now there isn't a te- technological uh, alternative. Um, you know, we're hoping that one day um, battery power can provide the storage. But right now it's, it's four hours, and that's certainly not, uh, not long enough. But uh, since, since most of the time uh, neither of the two renewables, wind and solar, are, are operating, you have to have something uh, to back it up. I mean, nuclear is, is, is absolutely fundamental, but it can't gear up in minutes. It takes days to... To, to shut down and 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 hydroelectricity uh, hydroelectric power is also critical but it 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 isn't as as flexible as as natural gas is so we, we can't get off that and I think the the government of Ontario realizes that they're not being explicit but they talk about a pragmatic approach and that's 
I think what uh, what what they're talking about. But but frankly, it's um, it, it's complete delusion uh, for people to think that they can get off uh, natural gas and rely entirely on on renewables. It's been tried and it's been a a, a, a catastrophe, frankly. And to bring it back to that catastrophism and, and that aspect of, of this, the, the one thing that I'll, I'll point out as well is that there are a lot of slogans and platitudes in this space. Now, I mean, obviously this exists in politics in general, but when we hear net zero by 2050, we've picked an arbitrary goal, net zero, we've picked an arbitrary year, 2050, and we've said everyone has to bend over backwards to make this happen. And and it's not particularly feasible, as we're seeing, which is why uh, even if Canada were to bend over backwards, and cripple its economy and do all sorts of harmful things. We're talking about a net reduction of emissions in the world that is minimal, absolutely minimal compared to China, India, the United States. And that part is, I think, probably one of the most obvious points, but it's not really one acknowledged by governments. Well, they don't want to, uh, to talk about it, but Canada is 1.5% of, of global emissions. So we could go back to the Stone Age and it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't affect anything. Within a few weeks, uh, uh, China's increase in, in coal production would make up for that. And we would be running around with, uh, with, with rocks and clubs, <laughs> you know, a feeling right and self And our LED-powered candles, because you can't even burn the flame. That's not yeah. allowed. You know, so you know, really, th this is this is not uh, this is not uh, the the way to go, and it's not uh, it's it's totally it's totally impractical, and uh, you know, Europe uh, Europe un under understands that. Uh, so I'm afraid it may take a a a, a, a real sort of emergency uh, to get people off the idea that uh, that this is uh, this this is something that they have to pursue at, at the expense of of the least advantaged people in the least advantaged uh, countries. Uh, but, you know, maybe at some point practicality and guilt uh, will, will start um, moving things uh, over. And of course, uh, another way that it could happen is with, uh, is with political change. Mm -hmm. right, right now it may be uh, that it's too early to be sure, but the, the liberal party seems to be in its death throes. So that could, uh, that could, uh, obviously uh, make a difference but we're we're seeing this issue play out in in other countries and uh, frankly those who are uh, carrying the green banner are not doing well politically in the last uh, year or two no and, and i think to put a fine point on this your contrast of the canadian experience and the european experience is an important one and i would also say that even people that are very committed to the abstract idea of a climate emergency when the energy crisis hits them, that's no longer an abstract emergency. That's something they have to contend with. And it's all well and good to say when everything is theoretical, oh, yes, we need to you know, go and save the seaside property in the Maldives or whatever. Uh, but when you are faced with that decision and don't have the energy you need to run your business or you can't afford to uh, heat your home, it's not the abstract crisis that grabs you. Well, the other thing that's, that's really important to understand is that the science is not settled. No, uh, there was a, a book written by uh, Stephen Coonan, who was an undersecretary of of uh, of, uh, of energy and and is a as a scientist in the Obama administration. And the, the title of his book is Unsettled. So that uh, 
would indicate where where he where he's uh, coming from. But uh, very recently, and this was quite significant, the the chairman of the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the uh, the body, the UN body that uh, that so many of these uh, catastrophists look to uh, for for support, the chairman said, uh, "Let's not exaggerate this. There isn't the emergency uh, that." Um, that frankly so many people are, are talking about and you're paralyzing people with fear um, by, by claiming uh, that uh, almost nothing can be done. Uh, we got 12 years, two days and five hours uh, before it's, you know, the doom is, is, is sealed. Uh, well, first of all, they've been making these, these proje projections forever. Uh, the, um, the models run hot. They've all been wrong. So why would we believe uh, models which are consistently wrong the next time. Uh, you know, just maybe uh, they don't have it right this time either. Uh, someone who has a perfect, perfectly wrong record is not someone that normally inspires confidence. But, you know, the latest the pro projections are getting even more strident, I think, because of, of the, 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 the fact that they can't really back it up. And the reason that they're running hard is because they have certain relationships built into them mathematically uh, that aren't uh, proving out. So, you know, I, I don't think we should lose sleep uh, about a, an imminent uh, climate emergency. Uh, I'm losing sleep about what the climate alarmists are doing to, to the economy. And Very well the, said. And, and what they're doing uh, to the Western world in its real existential battle and that is a, a, an emergency in its real existential battle with, with China, uh, which is uh, laughing all the way to the bank. Very well said. Joe Oliver, Canada's last fiscally responsible finance minister, hopefully not forever. <laughs> Joe, thanks very much for coming on. Always good to talk to you. Great to talk to you, too. All right, Joe Oliver, and you should read his piece in the Financial Post called the We Are in the Grip of Climate Change Catastrophism, and we certainly are. Uh, one thing I want to talk about just very briefly before we hit the road here metaphorically is this uh, push by the media, which I absolutely love just because of the sheer brazen hypocrisy of it. Now, I'm going to talk about this in a bit more detail tomorrow. You may recall in C18, the government said uh, that the big uh, tech companies like Facebook and Google, had to pay the mainstream media money. And the reason was because all the media got up in arms and started yelling and screaming, saying, Facebook's stealing our content. You know, when we post a link on Facebook and Facebook lets people click that link and come to our website because we wanted them to come, that's theft. And I'm like, okay, we're relying on these people to give us an accurate, grounded vision of what's happening in the world. So take that aside for a moment. These people that are so detached from reality themselves that they think uh, the dissemination of content that they disseminate is theft. Nevertheless, these people uh, got their bluff called. They said to Facebook, how dare you? You're stealing from us. Facebook turned around and said, okay, fine. Let's accept at face value what you're saying. We will not allow your content to be stolen. We will not steal your content. We don't want to pay you, but, be, but we just won't take it. Well, now you have these very companies, the companies that were the most enthusiastically gung-ho for C18, now complaining to the Competition Bureau to apply prosecutorial powers against Facebook. I, I kid you not, the media companies have filed a joint complaint 
against Facebook. They want the Competition Bureau to throw the book at them. Now, the companies here are the Canadian Association of Broadcasting, which includes broadcast media, the News Media Canada, which includes newspapers, and CBC. Now, CBC applying any complaint to the Competition Bureau seems rather odd. This is a government monopoly that dares to say it wants to protect competition. That, Like that, to me, talk about being devoid of reality. But even taking the CBC factor out of the question, you've got newspapers, broadcasters that are saying, okay, we now demand Facebook take our content and pay us. Well, which is it? Do you want them to stop stealing the content or do you want them to uh, steal the content? Oh, no, they want you to pay for the content, which means it is not anything other than extortion. It is extortion. The mainstream media in this country are extorting big tech and the government is facilitating it because there is never anyone more generous than someone who has access to the wallet of someone else. So the federal government gets to claim that it is being benevolent and generous. Well, it is spending Facebook's money and spending Google's money to prop up dying legacy media outlets. And we in Canada as taxpayers are supposed to be grateful that the government's sticking it to big tech and oh well at least they're not charging us more in tax money it is about what is right and what is wrong and the government has decided that it wants to just penalize tech companies who have many flaws many many flaws but just penalize them for the sake of subsidizing dying media and doing it in a way that it doesn't look like the government's just writing another big fat check and how dare how dare these outlets, which demanded their content be removed in the first place by virtue of supporting Bill C-18, turn around and now try to get this company prosecuted. Facebook, like I said, not perfect. I've got a lot of issues with big tech, but as I've often repeated, if it comes to a battle between big tech and big government, I am siding against the government every single day. That does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.